0: So, you can tell that meditation is becoming more mainstream by the number of cartoons that there are about it. And because I'm definitely interested in this theme, I like to collect them. And this is one I saw a little while ago in The New Yorker. Picture is a couple sitting in front of the television, and the television's blaring away an advertisement for a show. And the caption is, This week on the amazing race to enlightenment? Can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? (laughs) So we know we're kind of hitting home when that's getting in the New Yorker. But there's another cartoon that many of you may know. It's been around for a while, but it's perhaps more appropriate to our situation here. And the setting is... Two monks sitting in a zendo, a meditation hall, and you can, it's kind of gloomy, and you can tell it's severe and kind of cold, they're all bundled up, and the younger one has leaned towards the older one. You can tell he's just asked a question, and the caption is, nothing happens next, this is it. <laughs> so you may have had that thought a number of times during the retreat. Well, what what now? What happens next? And our answer always is, this is it. There's another sitting, another walking, another breath. So what is it? What what are we doing here with this focus on the breath? I mean, if you try to explain to someone who didn't know anything about meditation what you were doing here, wouldn't they think you were a little bit crazy? You know, I'm just sitting and walking and paying attention to my breath. It's like, huh? Well, we're not here training to be good breathers. We're not here uh, to have a certain kind of breath, a good breath. We're not here to experience certain states. We're not even here ultimately to get concentrated. We're here to learn how to train the mind to collect and unify the mind so the mind becomes an ally and the skill that we learn here is something that we can bring with us out into the world, into our lives and certainly into our meditation practice going forward because whatever experiences you have here, however beautiful or however difficult, they're impermanent, they're conditioned, they will pass. But the skills that you learn the understandings and the insights that you gain, that you can bring with you, and that's what's important about what we're doing here. But we are using the breath or other objects, we've mentioned a few that, that uh, may, you know, can be used to train the mind, mainly we're using the breath to do this work of training. Because as the Buddha said, and I'm paraphrasing a little, he said something like, the untrained mind is worse than your worst enemy, and the trained mind is better for you than your best friend. So really this sense of if, if we don't do this work, we're at the mercy of our minds. Our minds can be so chaotic and unstable. But when the mind gets trained, it becomes our ally, our support. And there are these beautiful descriptions in the suttas of what this mind is like. And one that I like says concentrated, purified, and cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, wieldy, and steady, and having gained imperturbability. I love these descriptions. Malleable, wieldy, steady. What this implies to me is this mind that we've shaped with deliberateness, in, in a wholesome direction. But it's then our ally. We can use it. It's wieldy. It's responsive. And I think we've mentioned already, it's one of the challenges of a concentrated mind. You have to be careful what you point it towards because it can get absorbed in all kinds of things and perhaps sometimes not so skillful things. Because it has this capacity, once it's in this area, in this, in this field, to get absorbed. For me, when I started doing, uh, especially concentration practice, and had this experience of the mind being responsive, of it being wieldy, of it actually being an ally, it was a huge shift in my practice. Instead of relating to the mind as something I kind of had to struggle with and, and, and cr- try and you know get a handle on and work with and was difficult and chaotic and full of all kinds of Dukkha. To actually have the mind be an ally and a friend was a big shift in my practice and brought a huge amount of faith and confidence that here were these words, these teachings of the Buddha from 2,600 years ago. And through this practice, I was able to move into that territory that he was talking about. Really very inspiring. And then, as I was saying, of course, what we do with this mind that gets concentrated and is responsive, is we turn it to insight. This is the, the point of our concentration practice. Temple talked about the, the experience of the Buddha where he, he did. these um, went to the best teachers of his time. They taught him everything. They knew he excelled to such, uh, such an extent that both those teachers said, "Come sit by me, you know, be my equal." and teach with me and he just said no I see this isn't enough just concentration isn't enough and what he realized was we had to turn that concentrated mind to this penetrating insight and that's what would uproot um, the poisons of the mind the things that uh, create suffering so we use this level of this concentration to whatever level we develop it to That's the point of concentration. May not be jhana, and as we keep saying, certainly in this retreat, this is a short amount of time to develop concentration. We usually tell people you need at least a month, and maybe longer than that, to really begin to explore this terrain. But you've all had a taste of the mind collecting and unifying. And so it's not that we have to experience jhana to have this sense of the power of concentration. Many teachers or traditions actually don't believe that you need to experience jhana. You might have we've, there's a whole sort of debate dialogue going on in Buddhist circles about the necessity of that. But there's many valuable traditions um, that say all we need is what's called access concentration, upachara samadhi, or neighborhood concentration. And this is the type of concentration It's called access because it gives access to jhana, or it's in the neighborhood of jhana. It's close enough. The hindrances are relatively suppressed. The mind is clear and bright. It's, it's, it has this malleability, but it hasn't uh, sunken into the absorption. So for, for many of us, that's more than enough concentration to use to turn to insight. So, you know, we're, we're just working in this terrain and all just learning and, and deepening as, our, as the conditions allow. We want to state up front, and I'm sure it's not news to you, that the breath isn't inherently interesting. You know, you don't say, boy, I'm so glad I get to sit down and breathe for another hour and just pay attention to the breath. Maybe by now it's a little more like that, but certainly in the beginning... Um, we can't, and so because of that, the breath, I mean, it has its beauty, but there's a neutrality to it. It's so familiar to us. I mean, how many breaths have we taken in our lives? What we start to realize is we can't force that attention through sheer effort or will. We have to what we call fall in love with the breath, have the breath become preferable to whatever else is on offer, in the buffet of our mind, of all the alternatives. And, you know, if you look what's there, it's the stories, the drama. And what, what is it? It's the story of me. And this is what we're giving up to give preference to the breath. We have to prefer calm to drama, calm to the stories, to the, the intrigues, the, the whys and the wherefores and the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and I wish and I shouldn't have the past and the future. This preferencing of the breath, preferencing of stillness. To do that, to fall in love with the breath, again we can't do that, we can't just decide to do that. We have to have this context or understanding within which this practice is happening, within which these teachings are being held. And as I've said, we train the mind. The reason we do this is so the mind, when it's turned to insight, actually penetrates more deeply. That the mind that's steady and responsive is able to be with the complexity of experience, the changing nature of experience, everything that's happening at the six Sense doors, as we do in vipassana with this openness it both is able to be more present more steady with this changing in some way sometimes challenging range of experiences and also when when we see more clearly when the insight arises it goes more deeply into a concentrated mind so it has this you know before and after kind of benefit But concentration has benefits in and of itself, and maybe you're tasting that a little. Just the steadiness, or the calmness, or the receptivity, um, almost a kind of tenderness that gets developed as we do this very simple practice. This, just on its own, has benefits that will serve you as you go back out into the world. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the retreat. But just to recognize that the very practice itself, again, it's not a scientific study, but, you know, if normally our brainwaves are kind of like this, it cools it out a little bit. You, You know, there's more this steadiness of attention. We're not so jittery, not so... Uh, on this high-level alert, there's this settling and stilling that happens, that the body and mind just kind of go, ah, thank you, you know, thank you for just bringing that in, the calm, the peace, the quiet, even if it's just for a moment, you've had that taste or that touch of that relief from the often relentless barrage of the, the commentary and the judging and the the opinions that run through the mind. So this falling in love with the breath happens through a change in perception. Perception is a very important mental factor in the Buddha's teachings. Sanya is the Pali word. It's one of the five aggregates, and it's another whole teaching I won't get into, but the aggregates are places that the Buddha said we should pay attention to in our practice, in the practice and the observation of mind and body, because that's where we tend to get stuck and identify. And sunya or perception is one of these places that condition and filter our experience so that if it's distorted, if we're not seeing clearly, we get caught in suffering. We get caught in craving or aversion and therefore suffering. So the practice around perception is usually to bring it more and more in line with the truth, with the Dhamma, with reality, to see as clearly as we can, not through the filtering of perceptions that are conditioned by all of our previous experiences. So the Buddha talks a lot about working with perception and clarifying perception. But he also talks about really shifting perception and seeing the beautiful in the not beautiful and the not beautiful in what we commonly take to be beautiful. That these are perceptions that can be changed through wisdom if they're done with skill. So this is one of the ways we can work with the breath. I, I learned a lot about this from one of my concentration teachers. I've met him, but haven't practiced with him, but listened to a lot of talks. Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahma Wangso, he's an English monk trained in the Ajahn Chah tradition. Now lives in uh, Perth in Western Australia and teaches mainly uh, concentration Jhana practice. So has a lot of talks. Online, a lot of books written about it. And he tells this story about his early um, struggles in meditation as a monk. And I can just imagine him because he's quite a passionate guy even now. But back then in Thailand, you know, really throwing himself at this mountain of concentration I'm going to get concentrated, I'm going to do it, you know, on fire for the practice. And he said he'd always get so far and it would crumble. Effort always took him so far and you'd get that feedback, oh, it's working, I'm getting deeper, it's happening. But sooner or later, if it's just through force of will, it will crumble. And so after doing that, how many times, he didn't count how many times, but it was probably many times he realized he had to change how he was relating to the breath. When he looked at his relationship, it was that the breath was boring and that the only way he could keep his attention on it was by this force of will, this, this strong intention, this striving, this warrior kind of spirit. So he realized he had to change his relationship to the breath. So he developed what he called subhasanya, beautiful perception, and out of that beautiful breath. So there's a whole teaching on the beautiful breath and shifting our relationship to the breath, so that it actually becomes almost, you could say, our love object. The beloved. You know, as much as any being or um, love interest might be, that the breath, this intimate relationship with the breath, can bring that. And so, you know, for all of us, we'll have to discover what works to invite that relationship. Again, can't force it but we reflect on the positive qualities of the breath. We've been talking about this. You know, teachers often talk about, imagine it was your first breath, that newness of breath, or your last breath, or if you were being held underwater and you, you know, burst into the air, and that breath of you know, reviving yourself. If you've had a cold or allergies or sinusitis, and I know some of you are struggling with that, and then the breath clears, Sometimes I just sit and appreciate having a clear breath, that the breath is moving easily in and out. You know, what the last breath, what would that be like to really be present with clarity for that breath as it was your last breath? And so these kind of reflections, even just how calming the breath can be when the mind quietens down a little bit, you tune in, this rhythmic nature, its softness, its subtleness... You know, just to, to actually tune into these positive qualities. And it's a kind of feedback loop. The more we quieten down, the more we get absorbed, the more the breath becomes beautiful. The more we see and experience a beautiful breath, the more we get absorbed in the breath. So it really starts to feed back on itself. And we can even use kind of imagery with the breath in a way we probably wouldn't or maybe shouldn't do in Vipassana, where there's just this emphasis on clear seeing and letting things be just as they are, and acceptance, but I often talk to people about using imagery like the brushing of fine silk on your skin, or that whooshing of a gentle wave that's coming up onto a a sandy shore, you know, just that shhh, the subtle movement of a breeze when it's just the right breeze. You know, if you're sitting in here and it's a little stuffy and just the right breeze comes and caresses your cheek. Anything like that that works for you, uh, these are all things that help us fall in love with the breath. All of the props we talk about, like counting the breath, whether you count down from 10 to 1 or up from 1 to 10 or count to 100, you know, these are things we can do that really help us connect with, this Vitaka and vichara, staying with the breath. Dhammo, nammo, in, out. These are all things we can do to help deepen that connection, help us get absorbed in the breath. But I call them transitional objects. They're like our training wheels. And when we need them, we really need them. There's no certainly no shame in having them. I, I personally use them all the time, even now. Um, they're really helpful. But at some point, we want to let them go. All of these supports and props that we might use, um, at some point, just the breath. At some point, even the breath might drop away. Um, But I'll talk more about that a little later. Um, When the the awareness is is steady and continuous, the vataka vichara just effortlessly going on, then we're just with this simplicity of breath. We let that be enough. And then when that fades, as it will, you know, concentration is a constructed state. We're willing to go back to what worked. So we learn these skills. What helps me actually maintain this connection to the breath and the beautiful breath to really see the importance of this quality of beauty, of love in this relationship with the breath, that it's not just... A functionary thing and we're not kind of just on automatic pilot. There really is this relationship that gets developed. I just read this article uh, a day or so ago about some recent research into happiness and its connection to beauty. And like a lot of these articles it's kind of synthesizing some of the more recent research in these areas. And the uh, journalist said that the usual markers of happiness are colloquially known as the big seven. Wealth, especially compared to those around you, family relationships, career, friends, health, freedom, and personal values. But according to this new study, however, what makes people happiest isn't even in the big seven. Instead, happiness is most easily attained by living in an aesthetically beautiful environment. The things that people were constantly surrounded by, lovely architecture, history, green spaces, cobblestone streets, had the greatest effect on their happiness. And this was what caught my eye. The cumulative positive effects of daily beauty worked subtly but strongly to bring a, a level of happiness. And so my thought was, what if it was the breath that was beautiful? And there it was, always with you, reminding you of this possibility of beauty and bringing happiness. So this was interesting. Um, and the journalist went on to say, it seems part of human's appreciation is, of beauty is because it is able to conjure the feelings we tend to associate with happiness. So this connection between beauty and happiness. Calmness a connection to history or the divine, wealth, time for reflection and appreciation, and perhaps surprisingly, hope. Now, instead of the word hope, I I would substitute the word faith. And it's not faith in some external being or belief, but actually faith in the possibility of this practice bringing us to greater freedom and even perhaps awakening that these all come together to bring this sense of happiness and contentment that's so important. And so this is why we just instinctively love nature. You know, why people love coming on retreat here at Spirit Rock and the way the meditation hall is nestled. So it has a little bit of kind of sheltering, yet this expansive view. You have kind of choices of places where you wander. The wildlife, as I said, it's a little tame compared to Yellowstone, but still it's sweet to see it. I saw a coyote crossing the road the other day. You know, I just remember being in Yellowstone uh, a week or so ago and just standing on a on a rise in front of this vast valley with the river running through it and the grasses swaying and the bison, you know, th- literally thousands of bison grazing and herds of elk and the mountains in the distance. And something just lifts us up, right, when we see that. So we love the, 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 the spaciousness, the grandeur of Grand Canyon and mountains. the the meadows of wildflowers, the alpine lakes. It's why we love cathedrals, why cathedrals were built. You walk into a cathedral and the spirit just soars into that space. I always remember Ajahn Sumedho, very um, wise and powerful teacher of many of us. Uh, He's uh, in the uh, Thai forest tradition, and he talked about always wanting to go to the Arctic, And he didn't want to go to the Arctic to see polar bears. He didn't want to go to see the northern lights or whales or I don't know, whatever else you might think you might see. He said he just wanted to go and see white. Mm He said he wanted to go and see white in every direction as far as you can see. And he wanted to go and walk and stand until that's all he saw. And I really got a sense when, as I tuned into that, what he was looking for was the physical representation of what the Buddha called the luminous mind. And in uh, the depictions of concentration, there's often this word luminous. There's often intimation of light, especially white. And to have that in your environment, it invites then these qualities. So we use this inclination, this perception of beauty to actually really support and develop and deepen our practice. It's what happens in... Cassina practice, and Philip gave us a little uh, quick version, the Cliff's note version of Cassina practice the other night with the shawl, if you remember the blue shawl. In Casina practice, it's one of the 40 uh, practices listed in the Vasudhimaga, which has it's a huge compendium of teachings on uh, concentration and insight. There are 40 practices, 10 of them are Casina practices. And in Casina practice, you take an object or an experience, it could be one of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, or a color, red, white, yellow, or blue, other, other things, and you absorb into them. Um, sometimes you literally create a disc, a colored disc, or a disc of earth, and the idea is you set that up in front of you and absorb into it until you can develop what 's called the countersign where you can in, when you close your eyes, your whole inner world is filled with that element or color it 's a it 's a, a, a very difficult practice but I, I I must admit i I tried it uh, once i was i'd done a you know I, I was in my phase of doing a lot of concentration practice and i 'd done metta and all the other brahma-viharas and a lot of breath practice, and I just thought, why not try casino? I had no teacher, no one who could tell me more about it. I was just literally reading from the text. And so they say, make a disc. And I wanted to do blue casino, because that's what I'd heard is often the place you start. So I got an old blue zafu, and we don't have any here, but I I have one at home. You know that kind of blue, and it gets a bit grubby after. So I'm like, Blue, blue, blue. And after all I'm like, this is not happening. You know, this old blue Zafu is not elevating my mind into luminosity. So I just remembered Subasanya, beautiful perception, and decided that what I would do is just reflect on what's the most beautiful blue that I know. And for me it's water, either swimming pool blue or tropical, you know, lagoon blue. And I just sat there and let my mind literally fill with blue, with this radiant blue. And, you know, at times it was difficult, but at times I just got totally rapturous. Just blue, letting the mind steady and absorb into blue. So using perceptions of beauty, using what is in our surroundings or shifting in perception, this is really valuable for our concentration practice, to actually give ourselves permission to do this in a skillful way. And the Buddha talked, uh, and his disciples often talked about the beauty of nature and how it supported them. You know, the Buddha was always saying, go out into the forest to these roots of trees, to places of calm and solitude. That's where you can deepen your practice. And he would talk about it as a wholesome pleasure. In, uh, in the text, as I said, there's often references to this, and particularly in uh, the Teragata and the Terigata, and these are the enlightenment poems of the enlightened monks and nuns of the time of the Buddha. Beautiful little, very short poems, and you know, many I could have chosen, but I picked one from Venerable Mahakasapa. He was an elder at the time of the Buddha, one of his senior-most disciples, actually quite stern. So sometimes I'm a little, hmm, But he really appreciated nature. He had a strong ascetic practice. And he lived, uh, spent a lot of his time in Rajgir. And I m- mentioned in the beginning that I did pilgrimage, where you go to these places, not just the four main sites, birth, birth, death, um, enlightenment, uh, um, and First Sermon, but uh, places where he spent a lot of time in Rajgir was where the Buddha spent a lot of time. And it's his very, for for this area of India, which, you know, it's the plains of India mainly, is quite rocky and mountainous. And even now it's quite beautiful, but it's been, I'm sure, very changed from the time of the Buddha. But it was wonderful being at Vulture's Peak and uh, Mahakasapa's cave and Ananda's cave and the Saptapani cave and just... Tuning into what life was like for these monastics who were practicing at the time of the Buddha. Anyway, there's a cave called Mahakasapa's cave, and it said that while he was alive, his supporters said, Why don't you go live in a comfortable monastery? Why are you clambering up? You're an old man clambering up these rocks to your cave. And he said, Like towering peaks of dark blue clouds, like this, like splendid edifices are these rocks where the birds' sweet voices fill the air. These rocky heights delight my heart. And just that sense of, you know, that he's fully enlightened, but taking this nourishment from the beauty around. So this is a wholesome and skillful pleasure, to let this in, to let the beauty, the joy of our practice, of our surroundings, to really... Um, learn from that, to really use that as onward leading. We can learn so much from nature. You know, it's such a teacher of impermanence, of change. But we also see we don't control it, we don't own it, and we don't even try to. Yet, you know, about this mind and body, we're definitely on our agenda, and it should be like this, and it shouldn't be like that. This body, too, is nature. Everything is nature. We don't own it. We don't control it. And if we try to, we will suffer. If we try to have things be a certain way. So we learn from this. We learn how to take this in skillfully. There's also in the text beautiful descriptions of the jhana states themselves that are all taken from nature. And Temple mentioned them last night and it just got me thinking, I want to read them to you because in their fullness they're actually beautiful, inspiring, even if You know, you're not going to experience them. We're we're going to be talking a lot about inclining the mind. We can only incline the mind to something that's in our field, something that we have a taste of, something we have an intimation of. So as we hear these teachings and these descriptions, it helps us know, oh, we're in this neighborhood, neighborhood concentration, or have a sense of what that's like. So there's a paragraph or so about each one, it'll take a little while, but just might invite you to sit back, perhaps close your eyes if that works for you, just to let these words go in. Here, this is the Buddha talking to his practitioners. Here, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu and an Bhikkhu Bodhi himself says that a bhikkhu is a dedicated practitioner, a sincere practitioner. So certainly while we're on retreat, we are bhikkhus or bhikkhunis for the feminine. A bhikkhu enters and dwells in the first jhana, which which consists of rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by thought and examination. That's vitaka and vichara. He makes the rapture and happiness born of seclusion drench, steep, fill and pervade this body, so that there's no part of his body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. Just as a skilled bath man or a bathman's man's apprentice might heap bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water would knead it until the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it and pervades it inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze, so too the bhikkhu makes the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of seclusion." Again, with the subsiding of thought and examination, a bhikkhuni enters into and dwells in the second jhana, which has internal placidity and unification of mind and consists of rapture and pleasure born of concentration without thought and examination. She makes the rapture and happiness born of concentration drench, steep, fill and pervade this body, so that there is no part of her whole body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of concentration. Just as there might be a lake whose waters welled up from below with no inflow from the east, west, north or south, and the lake would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain, then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the whole lake that is not pervaded by cool water. So too, the bhikkhuni makes the rapture and happiness born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so there is no part of her whole body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of concentration." Again, with a fading away as well of rapture, a bhikkhu dwells equanimous, and mindful and clearly comprehending, he experiences pleasure with the body. He enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, he is equanimous, mindful, one who dwells happily. He makes the happiness divested of rapture, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body that is not pervaded by the happiness divested of rapture. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water might thrive immersed in the water without rising up out of it, and the cool water would drench, steep, fill and pervade them to their tips and to their roots so that there would be no part of those lotuses that would not be pervaded by cool water, so too the bhikkhu makes the happiness divested of rapture, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body, so that there is no part of his whole body that is not pervaded by the happiness divested of rapture. Again, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of joy and dejection, a bhikkhuni enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, neither painful nor pleasant, Which has purification of mindfulness by equanimity. She sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind, so that no part of her whole body, so that there is no part of her whole body that is not pervaded by a pure, bright mind. Just as someone might be sitting covered from head down with a white cloth, so that there would be no portion of the body that is not pervaded by the white cloth, so too. The bukuni sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind so that there is no part of her whole body that is not pervaded by a pure, bright mind. So these descriptions invite us onward. Whether or not we experience jhana, this possibility of the coolness, of the stilling, of the drenching and the steeping, we can touch into that in our practice. What's important to remember, because sometimes we can hear these descriptions, people talk about jhana, and the mind wants that. I mean, it, it sounds beautiful. And you also have to remember that India is a very hot country, and these images of cool water pervading and, 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 and steeping and, and, and filling and, and a fount of water... Every part pervaded by coolness. This is, you know, the ultimate happiness in a in a very hot country. W- the Buddha talked many, many times about concentration and the value and the importance of concentration, and that often, in his descriptions of the development of concentration, the proximate causes of cause of concentration, that is, the factor that most. Enables it to flourish, are often either sukha, happiness, or pamoja, gladness. This is so helpful for us. There are lists where he has virya, energy, and viyama, effort. That these are also part of the list, but proximate to concentration, and nearly always things like. Contentment and happiness. Again, Temple mentioned the Anapanasati Sutta, which goes through using the breath to train the mind, just as we're doing. And in the third tetrad of the sixteen ste- of the of the four tetrad,s the the four steps are experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind. That's Pamoja, concentrating the mind, and then liberating the mind. There's another sequence in the Dighanikaya, where the Buddha says. When, she, when the practitioner knows the five hindrances are absent within her, gladness arises, and being glad, rapture arises. Because of rapture, her body becomes tranquil, and with her body tranquilized, she feels happiness, and with happiness, her mind becomes concentrated. So this is a sequence beginning with sila, beginning with integrity, beginning with living in alignment with our values. And then it deepens to jhana and to liberation. So this, this possibility or this invitation to explore and encourage beauty and joy in our practice, it's always helpful, but for concentration you could almost say necessary to discover these qualities. Again, we use the supports of the external, of nature or whatever, but ultimately we find them within through just the breath or the experience of the concentrated bright mind itself. To support that, we seclude the mind, as we keep saying. You know, we come into the format of the retreat, the simplicity of the retreat. We, we use this practice to collect and unify the mind. We guard the sense doors. This is another important practice for concentration. We don't let the energy leak out to tracking who's doing what and where, and why are they doing that, and, you know, what, what should I... Done about this experience at home, and why aren't they watering the trees? And what are they doing in the construction site? Guarding the sense doors. You can sometimes see some practitioners, they wear big hats and sunglasses. You know, it's just collecting the attention, not, not wanting to shut out the beauty that's there because we need to be open to that, but just to see how easily we're drawn into distraction. So, wise use of that, wise use of this um, seclusion. And a big part of the seclusion is the internal seclusion, as I said earlier, from our stories, not engaging in the drama of me. Philip talks about not being disturbed by our disturbances, just letting them rest. We've said again and again, just saying not now. It doesn't mean we deny or reject the the emotions or the experiences of our life. But for the purposes of this practice, we say not now, and we recognize even though you know we're we're talking about secluding the sense, uh, secluding the mind, and guarding the sense doors. We're not trying to create perfect conditions. It's not perfect here at Spirit Rock and it never will be, in fact, I hope it never will be, because these conditions are actually something that we work with. If we try to hold on too tightly to our seclusion, that's also suffering. If we don't want any noise, or we don't want anyone to disturb us, you know, make sure you're aware of our note system. We, we we, We could make a book out of the notes we've collected of suggestions to help us run the center better. And they're always anonymous, and they're always signed with meta, you know. But there's this, if, you know, why haven't you thought of, and if only you did, and, you know, it would be better if. It's not perfect, and in fact, we don't need perfect conditions. This is from Ajahn Chah, who is the teacher of Ajahn Semedo in the Thai forest tradition. He said, when I was younger, I looked for peace in the wrong way. I'd sit to practice samadhi and my mind wouldn't settle down. It ran around wildly and no matter how I tried to bring it back, it wouldn't return. If it did come back, it wouldn't stay. Sound familiar? What to do? Should I stop breathing? I used to try that. I'd hold my breath to try and force my mind to stop moving, but it would still go. I'd hold the breath longer, but the only thing that would come of holding the breath longer and longer was that I would eventually die. It was similar when I felt my meditation was disturbed by sounds. I filled my ears with wax. I stuffed them really tight so that I wouldn't hear anything. It seemed like a good thing. No more outside sounds to bother me. But when I started thinking about it, if not hearing or seeing anything is part of being awakened, then the deaf would all be enlightened. The blind would be enlightened. The completely deaf would be our hearts. So it's not about creating the perfect conditions and keeping everything at bay so we only you know, have beautiful surroundings. It's really more the shift of perception. And it's tuning into what supports the practice deepening. And as we've said again and again, the shift in perception or the shift in preferencing is for stillness, is for calmness is for this collectiveness of mind. So stillness in the body, again, as much as possible. Not to fight through pain, let the body be comfortable, but as much as possible, allowing stillness in the body and in the mind. And we find, you know, there was a question this morning about stillness, how do you be uh, with the breath when it's moving? Um, and it's finding the stillness in the breath. And it's sometimes not even in the breath, it's in the awareness. I've, I've used this, told many people in my interviews about this classic uh, simile in the um, commentaries about breath meditation where it's like sawing a piece of wood. And when we saw a piece of wood, we don't go back and forth like that. That would be incredibly tiring. We keep our attention on that point of contact where the saw meets the wood And that's what we do in breath meditation for concentration. We find that point of stillness in the breath. And so it's sometimes not even in the breath. It's in our awareness that's still, that's steady. Because for all of us, the breath, uh, sooner or later, will become imperceptible. And so finding that stillness so the attention can rest, even... When the breath is not there, whether it's the gap between the out-breath and there's in-breath or the breath itself becoming so still, but the mind has been so trained that we're with the stillness, breath energy, even you could say the concept of breath, the idea of breath. The mind is collected enough that it's happy to do that. We can't force that. This is a subtle mind that is able to be this still. If we try too hard, even it gets so subtle at this level of practice when where the breath is becoming fine, it's becoming perhaps imperceptible. I did a month-long retreat with out. Again, Temple has mentioned him. Great meditation master. Very kind. Um, but teaches these deep states of concentration. Only breath here, only breath at the nostrils. No, no training wheels. You know, he said, maybe you can count, but if you don't have to, don't do it. You know, really very simple practice. The basic schedule was hour and a half long sits, one half hour walking a day. So that was the structure of the treat and interviews every day. So I was doing this retreat. i done quite a bit of concentration practice. I'd even started teaching concentration practice. I was aware of all of the guidelines and the supports about right effort and calm and, you know, settling back and relaxation. And I thought I was doing that. You know, practice was developing. I could go in and say, you know, every day, a little bit of progress. But, you know, you really knew that you were uh, and even other teachers in the retreat, yeah, working up something good to say in those interviews, like what can I bring to the in- You know what that's like, right? Until one day I was sitting there in my room, you know, and thinking I was being with this really refined breath, and somehow I just had this insight, trying too hard. And what I saw, as soon as I had that thought, I saw that I was being with the breath in order to get concentrated. I was being with the breath, not just to get concentrated, but so I'd have something good to say to Paul Xayadau next time I spoke to him, which was gonna to be tomorrow, you know, and it came around very quickly. And all he would say was, how long were you with the breath? And if you said 10 minutes, he'd say, try for 20. If you said 20, he'd say, try for 30. If he said 30, try for, f- it was always just this next step, you know. And so you were really wanting to have something to say. And when I had that thought, the amount of tension in my body, even though it was really subtle, subtle level energy tension, it was amazing, and it all just crumpled. I just kind of, this big sigh, I had to let go. I went out and did a walk, and I was out in nature, and I just had to really begin again. I wasn't aware of this subtle level of striving. So we really have to pay attention here. We learn so much about right effort in this practice. You know, there's the initial big swings of just trying to find the breath and landing on it for a few breaths. And then we kind of get there and we're in the ballpark and the striving gets a little more subtle and then we relax and then we're out to lunch and then we come back in a little. But as it goes on, it gets more and more subtle. One of the huge things for me was learning how to keep the mind in a contented place and having permission from my teachers to do this. One of my teachers, Christina Feldman, would say, you know, just sit for as long as you're happy sitting. I was doing more self-retreat. If the mind gets in a struggle, just get up. Even just stand up and sit down or, you know, break the meditation. Don't go for a long walk, but just a few minutes and then come back and begin again. One of her instructions she gave me, I love, was when you feel you need it, just get a comfy chair and sit and stare out the window. You know, just that, not, you know, sit and think, but just let the mind soften until you feel ready to come back. So this sense of keeping uh, the mind contented really very helpful for this practice. So this permission to actually enjoy the breath, to enjoy practice. Some of us, this is a hard lesson to learn. We're so used to, you know, I'm working at the coal mines, I'm, you know, God, if I'm not struggling, it's not, you know, the Four Noble Truths, I'm not working with Dukkha. This is actually a misunderstanding of the practice. This is a teaching from Tanisaru Bhikkhu, another one of our people who I've been influenced by who teaches a lot on concentration. How do you use pleasure? Focus on the breath right now and see how it feels. Then experiment with the breath to see how the way you breathe can produce either pleasure or pain. It may be subtle, the difference between the two, but it's there. We've learned to desensitize ourselves to this aspect of our awareness, so it's going to take a while to resensitize ourselves, to begin seeing the patterns. This is why we practice. Keep coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. Try to get more sensitive to this area of your awareness, more skilled at learning how to maximize the potential for pleasure right here and now, simply by the way you breathe. Not only producing pleasure, but also maintaining it. After all, feelings of pleasure and rapture are part of the path. They're tucked right in the noble eightfold path under right concentration. And as part of the path, they have to be developed and maintained. As the Buddha said, this pleasure is blameless. When he's talking about pleasure and pain here, it's very subtle. It's not like the, the, the breast that you know, is immediately really pleasurable or that it's really painful. But just these subtle adjustments, subtle inclining the mind. When we get to this territory, it, it only takes the littlest bit. Of movement to actually shift the practice in a skillful way. Sometimes, unfortunately, in an unskillful way, but that's always part of the learning. There's no wrong here. There's no wrong way to do it. There's just the possibility for learning and refining. And it's said in the text that there are four types of practitioner there are those for whom practice is quick and easy, those for whom it's quick and painful. Those for whom it's slow and easy, and those for whom it's slow and painful. (laughs) Now, usually, most of us think we're the last one, right? It's slow and it's painful. But this is, if we hold on to that belief, then, you know, it has its own, we, we create a reality. What we really have to trust in is we're on the path and this path goes in one direction only. It's not the only path, but it goes in one direction. This path goes to more happiness and more freedom, and this simple practice of being with the breath, of training and cultivating a mind that's that's our friend, that's our ally, and that it's a mind that we know and that we can trust. This is the biggest gift we can give ourselves, and through that, to give the world. We don't do out this practice just for our own benefit. As we refine and purify our own hearts and minds, this becomes gifts that we're then able to bring out into the world. This practice does work. It's why you're here. I I teach the long retreats here at Spirit Rock, also at IMS, but for the ones here, I'm often one of the reviewing teachers for the applications that people send in to attend the retreat because we really want to make sure it's appropriate for people who come. So there's actually an application process. And so people often write things in these applications about why they want to do this particular long retreat. And someone wrote something in a recent application that I was so touched by, I asked if I could share it with you. And this is what he wrote. I can feel myself becoming a happier, more mindful, kinder, and more generous person as I continue to practice. I find that I can fall back into a very enlivened, radiating, happy, empty place that I first discovered on retreat and I am continually using it as a support to stay mindful and generous while dealing with the challenges of my day-to-day life. In addition to my sitting practice, I also have a practice of regular brisk mindful walking to help me stay connected to the sensations in my body. I feel from the inside that I'm rewiring my neural networks through through the concentration The impact of the whole body breathing and the long retreats has been indescribable. Access to an ongoing resource of happiness that I'm using to heal and reshape my neurotic habits and patterns. As I continue to connect to that place inside me in my daily life, it supports me in becoming more skillful in my actions and becoming a better, more generous and compassionate human being starting simply with awareness of breath and integrating all of the learning and the skill that develops in that to bring that back into our lives. This is the direction this path of practice leads and it's what I wish for you. So letting the breath come to the foreground, getting in touch with the body as it sits here and just allowing the words to settle. Receiving the breath, this beautiful breath. Calming, steadying, life-giving. Feelings of pleasure and rapture are part of the path. They're tucked in the Noble Eightfold Path under right concentration. And as part of the path, they have to be developed and maintained. As the Buddha said, this pleasure is blameless. Thank you for your attention about a half hour for walking and then invite you to come back for the last sitting where we chant together and uh, explore radiating the Brahmaviharas to all directions of the universe so when we talk about the luminous mind that's what that chant that we do in the evening uh, speaks about so invite you to come share it with us